0: Welcome to Neuromatters, The Brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Neuromatters, The Brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host Dr. Sam Brinkman and I welcome you to our program on Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. 5.2 million people in the United States with Alzheimer's disease this is a disease that you want to know about. Our program today is on communicating with individuals who have experienced some compromise in language abilities. As you know communication is fundamentally important in all relationships. Many of the disorders associated with dementia lead to problems in speech, language, or communication, and management of these challenges is critically important to avoid things like excessive frustration, depression, isolation, fear, escalating confusion. So this is what we're going to talk about today. Come on in, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and let's have a conversation about communicating with individuals who have Uh, language disorders. Our guest today is Linda Bosehart. She has 38 years of experience as a speech and language pathologist in outpatient rehabilitation and in long-term care settings. Uh, she completed her Bachelor of Science from Hardin-Simmons University and her Master's from Texas Tech University. Linda, do you want to say go Red Raiders in a little bit? Uh, sure. <laughs> and She has been employed at the West Texas Rehabilitation Center for 26 years as clinical coordinator with specialization in stroke and neurological disorders. She has also worked in private practice contracting with nursing homes. Now, Linda attended college on a rodeo scholarship. She's not a bulldogger, but she is great with horses. And in fact, she continues to participate in the judging and selecting of riders for the world-famous Six White Horses. The Six White Horses have ridden in parades all over the country. They have been in presidential inaugurations. So they are—they have just a phenomenal history and, and are um, uh, well-known all over the country. Linda, welcome to our program today.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Brinkman. And I will add one thing about uh, being a rodeo person. When I first enrolled at Hardin-Simmons, uh, they asked me what my major was going to be, and I was really undecided at that point. So, I decided to write roping and goat tying down, and the registrar <laughs> called my parent to clarify uh, that I was undecided at that time. So,
1: they so. considered that. A, it sounds pretty decided to me. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that 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 they got you steered in the direction of speech and language pathology because you have been a wonderful benefit to thousands of people over the years. And I hope that uh, with you being on the program with us here today, that you can extend that benefit to thousands more. So thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule to be here. You're welcome. Let's begin with something real fundamental. We use words like speech and language and communication. Can you tell us what each of those words means?
2: Sure, I'd be glad to. You know, when we refer to, uh, of course, I'm a speech-language pathologist, and we d- actually uh, differentiate the two even though they're very much a part of each other uh speech is the avenue in which we convey words in terms of the pronunciation or the articulation of the sounds uh sequencing the sounds together to form words it's what we hear uh language has to do with putting words together to form content that's the bearer of the message that's how we get information how we process and express information to others now Communication takes on a much broader sense in that there are many, many forms of communication that we use on a daily basis. Uh, It may not all be verbal. It may be nonverbal, where we're using our body language, our facial expressions, uh, when we react to humor and we do different things that are very, uh, what I would call, high level. And so communication is... I I once read this somewhere, communication is what sustains us Mm. as human beings. And uh, I have to tell you, there is certainly a direct correlation with communication and quality of life.
1: Very good point. Language in itself is fascinating. You know, we just talk. We say things. We use words and word combinations. But when you start looking at language analytically, it has such a complex set of rules that I guess we would put under the heading of syntax. That's not the tax for alcohol and cigarettes. That's (laughs) (laughs) S-Y-N-T-A-X. And so could you talk just a little bit about that? Yes,
2: certainly syntax is the grouping of wordings and the sequence of words, whereas the semantic aspect of that has to do with the, the actual meaning. And so often in, uh, when we're dealing with the dementia patients as we do, one of the hallmark characteristics that tends to show up is this issue with the semantic part of the language where uh, word-finding difficulties occur patient may well know what they want to communicate to us but at that particular moment the word or the thought uh, just goes out the window
1: as an example of syntax if I say to you the father's brother Mm -hmm. And the brother's father, I ask the question, are they the same people? Now, I can see our listeners running to get their (laughs) smartphones right now, get on the Internet and get the answer to that. (laughs) But the father's brother and the brother's father, the only difference is which word comes first and which word is in the possessive form. And, um, in fact, I'm going to challenge our listeners to call in with the correct answer. The first person to call in with the correct answer (laughs) will get applause from Linda and me. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The father's brother, the brother's father, are they the same person? We look at this area of the dementias and, and we know that there are language and communication difficulties and sometimes speech problems as well in various among these. Alzheimer's disease, for example, as you transition from the mild to the moderate stage, you see more and more difficulties with finding the right word or putting words together in the in the manner that communicates the intended meaning. There's this condition called primary progressive aphasia. Would you Talk just a little bit about that.
2: Okay. You know, in in these situations, you know, what we start to see in individuals is is that there appears to be, uh, especially in the early uh, stages, this uh, awareness that, you know, things are just not connecting well in their language. Uh, And there may be some frustration exhibited because that specific noun or word that they're hunting for is just not there. Uh, They may actually be trying to cover up somewhat in that in that recognition that the words are not there so they may try to substitute uh... synonyms or they may use what we call circumlocution where they talk around the subject to try to get at what they're looking f- you know the word they're looking for so, uh... And of course by just the word progressive there, we know that the nature of this has the uh, potential to uh, become more and more difficult over time, where the person has to uh, and I might you know add the caregivers are going to need to step in more to help with facilitation.
1: I received an e- email. Uh, from a man in Ohio who says, he doesn't know the the uh, answer to that question, let's hear it. I'm sorry, Charles from Ohio, you're going to have to wait. <laughs> and when they give out the phone number af- uh, after the break, uh, we will see who's the first to call in. But I will <laughs> applaud you for at least uh, holding me to the task. <laughs> Um, so primary progressive aphasia, aphasia, of course, referring to uh neurologically based language disorders. Right. Vascular dementia, we did a program on vascular dementia several weeks ago, and we know that with vascular dementia, you have it's almost like a, a multiple stroke type pattern. And when those strokes occur in language centers, you get different kinds of language breakdowns, don't you?
2: Absolutely. And you know, and I can speak to this particular topic because of personal experience. Uh, I uh, had a parent, my mother, had vascular dementia that was brought on by, over a period of time, numerous, many strokes. And uh, I found myself being in the role of not only a clinician, but a family member or daughter trying to cope with some of the changes in behavior that came along with this. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of the things that happened is that she would begin begin yelling and uh Uh, You might be sitting right beside her, but because of the visual field deficits created by the strokes, she was not aware that you were sitting there until you got into her visual field. And, you know, this is where caregivers and your observations really come into play here. And, And what we had decided as a family and as a clinician here is that my mother was afraid of being by herself or being alone. And the minute you moved into her visual field, then she responded in a in a more of a positive way.
1: Well, that's really an excellent example, because the communication problem there was not about speech or language, mm-hmm. but it was about the context, the geographical context in which uh, communication would be attempted.
2: Yes. And, you know, I think that's where this kind of leads into what uh, my role as a speech pathologist is, and certainly when we sit down with a family to talk about the the patient that we're dealing with what kinds of strategies can we come up with to maximize their functioning as much as possible and I'll give you an example she was in a nursing facility Uh, when we weren't there the hollering increased so we created videotapes that the nurses could plug in at any time during the day, uh, that she could actually watch in front of in her visual field and also hear our voices, and it was a positive outcome from the standpoint uh, we were using aspects of her uh, her functioning, like she was able to hear, she was able to see uh, frontally in front of her, uh, that reassured her that things were okay in her world.
1: Very creative solution. You Very have creative. To be. Yeah. We may look as well at Lewy body disorder, you know, which is sort of that mid-ground between Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. And, in fact, we did a program with uh, the, the um, uh, very brilliant Dr. Carol Lippa a few weeks ago on Lewy body disorder. And uh, with Lewy body disorder, you may see articulation problems because of the, the motor problems. Uh-huh. You may see the processing problems, but you also see the attentional difficulties in the highly variable performance Mm day-to-day or hour-to-hour.
2: And attention and concentration is a huge aspect of this and that's why it's so important when we approach these patients that we alert them that we want to share with them in communication in some fashion Uh, even sometimes to the point where there can be like a startle reaction or uh, a fear reaction and so it's very important that we gain that initial attention and focus even before we begin the communication process
1: and then we have frontotemporal dementia, and I am planning on doing a program in a few weeks on this disorder, but with frontotemporal dementia, what you see is the marked personality change, the difficulties with behavioral regulation, and emotional regulation. So again, communication problems are prominent, but for a very different type of reason.
2: Absolutely, and you know, and you see changes in judgment, problem solving in general, uh, and so it would require, a, I would say, a pretty different approach compared to some of these other areas that we've talked about today.
1: Well, Linda, thank you for that quick overview. We're going to go to break in just a minute. And uh, when we return, I don't know whether we will be talking to my father's brother or my brother's father, but uh, I am still waiting for that first call uh, to come in. that will tell us whether they are the same person or not. So stay with us. We will be back in just a few minutes.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment. Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness.
3: Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Neuro Matters the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Matters.
1: Thank you for staying with us. We are back. I am Dr. Sam Brinkman, the host of your program, and our guest is Linda Bozhart, speech and language pathologist with over 38 years of experience in outpatient rehabilitation and in long-term care. You know, Linda, Language does a lot of different things for us. We tend to think that language is simply about one person saying some item of information and another person receiving the item of information. But language has so much more function in our lives than that, doesn't it?
2: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we think of listening and talking, but then there's so much that that even goes beyond that, uh, You know, uh, we were just talking just a little bit ago at break about how sometimes we may ask someone a question, and that person may come back with uh, uh, maybe the appropriate answer to that question, but we notice their body language or their facial expression really doesn't match up with the response that we got. And so there's a whole lot to language in terms of our perceptions, and uh, you know when we're uh, interacting, of course, uh, there's information that's going in, and then uh, of course we have the output, the expression mode. But we are always constantly reading that other person and how they're responding in their body language. Uh, typically, in working with the dementia patients, um, what we absolutely number one have to think about is making sure that we've gained their attention, so that they know that they're involved in that interaction first and foremost. Uh, Then, once we begin that process, we try to think in terms of, okay, how do we adjust our language such that we're connecting with this individual? Sometimes people, have you ever been around persons that talk extremely fast? And you find yourself trying to keep up with what they're saying, or perhaps perhaps, a person that you're still back on question number one, and they've already continued on to questions number two and three.
1: Are we talking about mountain man on Duck Dynasty?
2: We might be. I'm not (laughs) sure. (laughs) But the idea being is that we all process information at different speeds, Uh, And it may well be that in certain cases, persons cannot handle a whole lot of information at one time because of what we call slow rise time. It takes them a little while to uh, get absorbed in what's going on and responding.
1: Let me be sure I'm understanding so that there are a lot of sort of introductory words and comments that really don't get to the point for a little while. And then they come to the point of the communication.
2: And then it may be too late in some instances because... They've missed the initial part.
1: And the listener is no longer on board with them. Right,
2: right. And that's why I think it's usually important to engage the person either through maybe tactile contact or eye contact or alerting them by name just to let them know that, you know, you're ready to do your communication
1: with well, them. That's interesting. You know, um, one of the simplest uses, uh, I just had another email Actually, that, oh, this is from Charles. Oh, he is right. Actually, that was my answer. No, they're not the same person. Linda, Charles got it right. Charles in Ohio, this is for you.
2: Congratulations, Charles.
1: (laughs) I would like to give you a gift card, but applause is cheaper. So, language to transfer information. Uh, A man, (laughs) the old joke, a man says to his wife, I told you I love you when I married you. If it changes, I'll let you know, right? (laughs) You know, so he is simply transmitting data. The information is that I love you. Whereas, for someone else, it's the experience of hearing those words together. And so, in that case, language in and communication are not about transmitting data, but are about sharing an experience or sharing an emotion.
2: Yes, and I, I want to bring that out about emotion and what uh, that, the importance of that, because it's the only avenue along with, of course, there our body language, or you can see a person, you know, tears running down their face, this sort of thing. But the language is the mode or the avenue to for them to go into detail as to what the problem is or Mm -hmm. you know what the response is Mm -hmm. you know and also uh language is uh something that we all utilize to offer condolences or reassurance or provide security to someone else uh and you know If you think about the person with dementia and if their language system is breaking down, it may be such a thing that a calm, uh, very uh, soft, tender voice may be the very thing that is needed at that moment. And so so it's not
1: even so much the words that are spoken. Right.
2: It's the the manner in which you go about because that is something that is retained and not lost just because the language or the words may be.
1: Yeah, that's a very good Um, point. So language is a way of... Providing comfort and reassurance to somebody uh, mm-hmm. to uh, join with them in their, um, in whatever emotional state they may be in at that point, so that they don't feel so isolated there. Right. So, language plays uh, those functions as well. You know, for caregivers, a lot of language is about giving instructions and, um, uh, well, what would we say, or giving feedback. Right. 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 And that can become a problem in its own right. Absolutely.
2: And I think, you know, as long as uh, you kind of have some guidelines that you go by in terms of, you know, adjusting your language so you're avoiding uh, very complicated terminology, keeping things very basic and what I would call contextually related to the situation. (laughs) Uh, And certainly if commands or directives are involved, uh, doing so with the tone of voice and the, And the body language such that uh, encourages a response but doesn't set off kind of like what I would call a reaction or Mm -hmm. some type of uh, emotional response that you wouldn't want. Mm -hmm. But there's something to be said about a calm, reassuring voice as being a a good way to, I think for any of us, uh, when we're approached by someone with that tone of voice, we're more apt to do more probably and respond more. The other thing that concerns me somewhat is what we call press for speech, and I think that's something that we need to avoid and allow the person on their own terms to try to uh, come back with a verbal response and and not judge them for the type or the quality of the response that they give us, but rather accept that that was what they could give us at that moment and then build on that.
1: Uh, At whatever level they communicate, build from that level. Right. Would you add to that also, allowing for longer delays in responding so that we're used to, you know, if if somebody had a stopwatch and said, okay, I ask a question, how many milliseconds before you begin to answer? If those delays become long because someone is trying to organize their thoughts or find a word, Mm -hmm. then it will be very important to give them the privilege of being a speaker in the conversation. Conversation by not interjecting or taking away from that opportunity.
2: Absolutely, and I think it can be taken by the individual as an interruption, and it may actually interrupt that thought process right there at that moment. And so, uh, I think you can get a feel as you work with the individual as about how much time is needed before you might need to come in with perhaps some additional cues or perhaps choices. And I tend to like uh, choice questions a lot uh, in terms of not putting a lot of pressure on, on the verbal language system so much by asking open-ended questions, but more uh, limiting that a little bit and trying to establish some success. For example, instead of saying, what would you like to drink this evening? Uh, perhaps I might say, would you like tea or coffee? And because many times a patient may be able to respond back with a single word response or at least indicate with a head nod or consider maybe a yes-no kind of question format, but not taxing the language system too much if they have pretty extensive verbal express, expressive
1: difficulties. So there what you are doing is making the, the context simpler. If we say coffee or tea, the person can comprehend that better than having to go through uh, the full range of drinks that they might have in their mind and trying to choose one from that. And it also empowers, doesn't it?
2: Yes. And and what I would say is it's a successful communication exchange. It's a win-win in that regard because naturally the person is rewarded with whatever they chose. Uh, and I think it's something you kind of have to get a feel for as you work with the individual. Essentially, what we become, I would say, is facilitators, that we learn how the person responds, that they may need added time to respond or perhaps they are slow to retrieve words or organize words, and we know that, and we try to adapt accordingly.
1: You know, um, when we uh, return, we have a break in a couple of minutes. When we return from that break, I would like to go over what advice you can give about how to help individuals, the the family members, caregivers, mm-hmm. in different situations like this. Okay. One of the real um, sad Aspects of dementia that I try very hard with my patients to work against early on is that sense of isolation from other people. And when communication becomes difficult, that sense of isolation can become really strong.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's our greatest fear, actually, is that a person could uh, actually. Uh, You know, become at that level. I just think that it's our duty or our responsibility to engage in whatever capacity a person in some type of interaction or involvement on a daily basis. And part of that's created by routine. And, you know, where a a person may be in a highly predictable routine where they can kind of anticipate and know what is going next. But uh, the socialization part, it is what we do as human beings. And it's our duty and responsibility to try to retain that, uh, I would say, even in some of the most difficult circumstances. And I'll give you an example of... uh, Let's say we have a patient uh, that has what I would call severe verbal expressive difficulties. Perhaps they're not making any sense in what they're saying. Well, the listener can kind of learn to look at the body language, the tone of voice, And in some ways, even though you may not understand what they're saying, perhaps there is something that you can say back in a calm voice that at least indicates to them that you are listening and that you are acknowledging them as a communicator.
1: Well, that's a very important point because there is a lot to listening that does not have to do with the ears. You know, there uh, are so many ways that people communicate listening to each other. Um, When we uh, come back from the break in uh, a few minutes. I would like to also just briefly discuss electronic and digital communication. You know, we live in a mobile society and uh, family members may say, um, you know, I I know that I live across across the country from my father or my mother, but we can Skype or we can FaceTime and that may or may not be successful. Similarly with the telephone, you know, communication with the telephone may or may not be successful. So we're going to go to a break and when we come back from the break, Linda, I would appreciate your addressing those issues stay with us we'll be back in just a couple of minutes
3: opinions options answers you're listening to voice america health and wellness
0: can grief be good for you absolutely Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it.
3: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice
0: America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Matters. The Brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters.
1: Welcome back. I am Dr. Sam Brinkman, your host on Neuromatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's, and we are talking with Linda Boshart about speech, language, and communication in individuals who have various neurological disorders. Um, I have received another email. A uh, man named Ian appears to be having a fascinating time playing with syntactic rules and father's brother and brother's father, and Ian, you stay with it, dude. I like what you're saying there. Um, Linda, before the break, we talked about electronic and digital communication. The simple thing like a, a regular landline telephone for you young people in the audience. This is a phone <laughs> that is in the house that you don't carry around with you. Uh, but also cell phones, Skyping, FaceTime, texting, things like that. Um, what, uh, what are your thoughts about individuals who have significant communication deficits, language deficits, let's say, and who are attempting communication? through those means.
2: Okay. Um, you know, in some ways, uh, it, I can see where it could increase the level of confusion because it sort of depersonalizes the whole interaction uh, between the two parties communicating. And sometimes when you take a program or something like Skype or FaceTime, uh, if you're communicating perhaps off the across the country or in another country with someone, the timing of the uh The picture and the audio sometimes does not go together very well. Very good
1: point, and that would be especially confusing.
2: Yes, because it would cause uh, it would be very disjointed. I would say, as far as the person trying to process all of that, Uh, and you know, and then again. Uh, Many of these individuals may have difficulty with uh, vision such that text messages or the size of the print or the way that it's positioned on the uh, device. uh, Or
1: Or the shorthand. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The The LOL and the OMG and all that stuff. (laughs) Yes.
2: And, you know, too, some of uh, the – we work with a lot of patients who did not grow up with this technology. This is a new thing that uh, uh, so many times uh, they don't have knowledge of it to begin with. And so it would be really hard to learn something new. I would say at this point.
1: It's interesting to see how much more effectively a person may communicate face-to-face than in comparison to communicating on a telephone where those visual cues are not present. And it does give you an index of how much they're relying on non-language, non-verbal information in the overall context of communication.
2: Yes, and as a matter of fact, just as an example, I'm sitting across the table from you, and I think uh, it's much more comfortable to interact uh, when you're in person versus if you were if we were skyping back and forth. This is a uh, much more relaxed and
1: uh, uh,
2: interactive, I
1: would say. Yes, it really is because you can read each other so well. Right. Uh, you've made mention a few times of nonverbal communications. Would you discuss, uh, sort of in a in a coherent package now? How do people communicate nonverbally? Oh, I mean,
2: there could be a a multitude of ways. I mean, eye contact certainly is a a critical uh, area. You know, we all know those persons that Uh, you know, when you're interacting socially that don't look at you. And it may well be that, you know, we tie in with that insecurities or maybe they're not interested in the interaction. There's a lot of things that kind of go along with the thoughts behind that. But uh, also body language. And, you know, when we're really intently listening listening to someone, a lot of times that position will be leaning slightly forward. Uh, perhaps uh, our head positioned where we're listening in, we're showing with our body language that we're interested. And certainly, we've all studied this about where when a person crosses their arms over their chest or crosses their legs, that they're more, I guess you would say, closed about wanting to communicate. So, our nonverbals, our gestures, our pointing, all of these things. Uh, uh, are important aspects of communication that we actually use as speech pathologists in this process of working on with the dementias. Uh, many times I uh, find in, in the work that I'm doing, if I have someone that is nonverbal, or limited, one of the first things I'm going to go to is uh, their gestural language and see what they're able to do. Are they able to represent something that they might need gesturally by maybe, uh, for example, uh, making a motion of their fist to their mouth to represent drinking a cup of coffee or something of this nature. But the nonverbal, too, can even go from the standpoint of the volume in which we talk, the uh, 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 even though uh, and pitch inflections and variations that we pick up that aren't really the words, but it's more the tone that's coming across. Uh, it may have to do with our breathing. Uh, the po- And I mentioned just a little bit ago the, the posture in which we, we sit down in front of someone to visit. And certainly facial expression we oftentimes, we could be in another country and not know someone else's language, but when we're greeted with a smile or if we see a grimace on someone's face, we automatic are ma- making some kind of an association here and some form of understanding.
1: You know, facial expression is interesting, um, and when we think about something like Lewy body disorder or Parkinson's disease, you know, traditionally neurologists have described what they call a mask-like face, and basically that means that the uh, innervation of the muscles of the face has become disordered, and so the face tends to be expressionless, that the, 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 um, the family members may think someone is sad or down or disinterested or angry or frustrated when really there's a major disconnect between the facial expression and what the person is actually feeling.
2: Absolutely, and in some ways it's sort of unfair, uh, you know, and it's, that is why it is so important. uh with caregiver education to make sure that this is understood, that this is a part of the the person and that they're not intending anything by it. It's just the way they are, you know, physically.
1: Mm -hmm. And on the topic of caregiver education, you know, I have at times suggested to people that are caring for a patient of mine with uh, one form or another of uh, dementia to have someone videotape them while they're talking to that person and then watch the videotape with the volume turned down and see what they understand from their communications. There are so many times when uh, a patient may be becoming fearful, becoming sad, um, becoming more confused, becoming more agitated or restless or irritable and regardless of the words that are being spoken, these nonverbal communications, the tone of the voice, the speech rate, the Mm -hmm. volume of the voice, the pitch of the voice, the facial expression, the posturing, the um, speed of movement of, uh, you know, whole body movements and limb movements, all of these will have a tremendously powerful impact on whether that situation gets better or worse from there.
2: Yes, yeah, whether it uh, remains a calm situation or it escalates
1: that's right yes That's right. Um, So um, for when I have done um, caregiver training, when I've done professional training, and I'm looking forward to a a program coming up in a few weeks for uh, CNAs, a certified uh, nursing assistants, um, and teaching them things like how to avoid escalating a situation, how to calm down a situation and things like that. Until you do a little bit of role playing or something with a video camera or something along those lines, you really don't realize how powerfully you communicate non-verbally. So, um, you know, I often, as I, you know, we like to provide a quick checklist for a problem is coming up on the Alzheimer unit. What do you do? And my first react, my first recommendation is check for patient safety. My second is check yourself. You yes. Know, check yourself. How are you feeling? How worried are you? How fearful are you? How frustrated are you? How tired are you? What are the nonverbal communications that you're giving? And get things straightened out there, and then address the situation that is coming up.
2: You know, I have one comment about that too. Sometimes when we were talking about uh, body position, you know, I certainly if the dementia patient is seated it would be important for the communication partner to be seated as well because of just the communication of a person standing over another person looking down may also be interpreted as something Perhaps antagonistic, or you know, and or maybe authoritative, and especially, might not be taken well.
1: Especially when that person standing up is 22, and the person sitting down is 78. <laughs> you know, that can be a real, yes. a real difficult situation. Well, let's talk about what kinds of guidelines we can give to people to help to improve their communication. Again, this has been woven all through our discussion here, but let's address this as a separate. Uh, topic now. Okay. What would you say to people, let's take a stroke patient first, a stroke patient that has global aphasia, impairment of comprehension and impairment of expression. What would you say to uh, a caregiver to help that caregiver connect with that person, communicate as well as the neurological situation will permit?
2: Okay. I think the main thing is, you know, treat that person as an adult, uh, and as the person that they they know, okay, and begin with that, and you know, certainly we don't want to do anything patronizing to try to accentuate the the difficulty of the situation but treat them with an adult use an adult tone of voice I would just say when we're talking about someone where there is a like a globally involved uh, language system uh, I would talk to the caregiver about you know when you present yourself uh, talk slower uh, if, and provide plenty of visual cues to go along with what you're, you're referencing.
1: What would be an example of visual cues? Uh,
2: for example, maybe uh, the persons are getting ready to leave the house, and it might be a cold day, and uh, the caregiver might point in the direction of the coat rack and say something to the extent, uh, uh, let's get your coat or get your coat. Uh, and where that's so contextually related and such a part of the routine that that would be something that would probably be, I would guess, more of an attempt at a successful communication.
1: So, that would involve both gesturing and presenting the the coat rack or whatever as a further visual cue to help to access residual language functions within the brain.
2: Absolutely. And I mentioned this earlier about, you know, press for speech. And certainly… Uh, we don't want to put persons like this in the hot seat where they feel like they have to perform and I would just say uh, being calm and inviting interaction as much as possible but it may well be that the speech language pathologist may need to be drawn upon to provide some other alternative methods to help with that communication and that might mean providing some uh, uh, pictures that are relevant to their uh, living environment it might mean uh, Uh, certainly having uh, it might be printed words or something of that nature based on what we found through our assessments. Uh, But the main thing, just slowing down that whole process and allowing the person time to respond and looking for those signs or opportunities
1: of communication. And would you agree that that slowing down is not just in terms of the number of words per minute, but the number of concepts per minute in those words?
2: Yes, lots of pausing and allowing time for the person to
1: absorb what they've just heard. Great. Well, Linda, that's excellent advice. We are going to go to break we will come back with Linda Boshart in a couple of minutes to um, get further direction and guidance on how to communicate with individuals that have neurologically based communication difficulties stay with us
3: your life your health your network You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters, screen for memory disorders or forget it. Find the healer within you. Listen for Chela's Chat with host Cella Zappia. Does your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual life seem out of balance? Often this lopsided outlook is what drives depression, and that can lead to illness and other problems in your life. Chela's Chat is a discussion program featuring guest experts plus your input. All together, we'll help you understand that there is hope. Tune in to Chela's Chat every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Neuromatters.
1: Welcome back to the program. I am Dr. Sam Brinkman, your host, and we are talking with Linda Boshart about speech, language, and communication. And I have to note, by the way, uh, I would hope that um, a professional experienced speech and language pathologist, a professional experienced neuropsychologist would provide a model for good communication for our listeners. However, I go back to this initial email from Charles in Ohio and... Uh, He said, no, let's hear it, and I thought he meant he did not know the answer to the question, let's hear the answer, (laughs) and in fact, as his follow-up email said, that was my answer, I want to hear the applause, so (laughs) not always um, the best example of good communication, Communication. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but we all hope to get better at it. Well, Linda, I am so grateful to you for your time here, and uh, I want to take uh, this last segment for further guidelines or recommendations that you can give to people, professionals as well as uh, the um, lay public, about how to communicate with someone with dementia.
2: You know, I think the main thing is just, uh, give, as we've talked about, allowing adequate time to respond uh, trying to build on the response that you get back from the individual. Uh, You know, if it's one word, you may be able to build on that. Uh, Reading their body language and trying to interpret and paraphrase and reinforce uh, communication so that the next, they may... Uh, continue to try to have dialogue with you. But I think the main thing is that we just have to all recognize how important this social aspect is and that no matter what degree or level the person is functioning, they need that on a consistent routine basis.
1: Discuss with us for a minute the um, advantages and disadvantages with respect to the length of communication. What's better? A longer sentence or a shorter sentence?
2: I say short and sweet. And, you know, try to, uh, we refer to it as uh, chunking information. And uh, most patients are going to respond far better to that. Uh, keeping your utterances to uh, brief, short, three to four, five word is probably enough. Uh, because the minute you get into too lengthy a dialogue, you may lose their attention and concentration. Mm-hmm.
1: What is a referent?
2: A referent is uh, the identification. It's basically the noun or the subject of which you're talking about. And it is really important with these individuals to identify the subject matter of what you're going to talk about.
1: So if we're talking about cars and we're going to change the conversation to, um, let's say, national politics, the referent changes. And that can be difficult for someone to transition through
2: absolutely, and it would be necessary for uh, the communication partner to identify, okay, now let 's talk about you know cars mm-hmm. or a specific type of car, or maybe also have a picture of the car, but a lot of times there is this difficulty of shifting. Uh, shifting set is what I call it. Uh
1: And so the more structure that can be provided for that transition process the more helpful the caregiver will be in maintaining communication. And we transition topics all the time and we don't really think about it but the caregiver has to really have a lot of self-awareness with respect to communication.
2: And being able to listen to the response back that they're getting so that they know that the person is still with them on that particular topic.
1: Yes. Going back to caregivers, as we talked about before, they are very often in the role of having to give commands. Now, I I don't like that word in this context, but that's the word we use, following commands, giving commands, giving two-step commands, three-step commands. How can caregivers best get the person to do what they want them to do without in quote, giving commands.
2: Okay. I think, you know, it's very important that things be related to the situation of what's going on, whether it be ADLs, let's say dressing or whatever. But basically, I think it works best to do a single command at a time. And
1: so, don't do multi step. Try put to put your avoid. socks on and then put your shoes on and tie them.
2: Absolutely. I uh, because I think when a person has to try to build on that and rely on a memory system that is already beginning to fail. Uh, it certainly is more of a positive experience to get them to respond, and then you can add the next command and the next and so forth and get get done whatever the task is you're doing.
1: Okay. Yeah. Now, let's talk about communicating in a group setting and what's the best way to approach that. I know that um, we are social critters. You know, we enjoy relationship with each other. We enjoy fellowship with each other, and throughout adulthood, you know, that may consist of six or eight or or ten guys sitting down and getting coffee, you know, one day a week, especially retirees, you know, enjoy that kind of thing. But as the language problems come up, that presents its own challenges, doesn't it?
2: Certainly it does, because you're trying to keep up with multiple, and a lot of times in a social situation, people are all talking at the same time or, or moving from one topic to the next rather quickly. And I've always felt that the best response or the best scenario is small group, one-on-one, or no more than two or three people interacting. So,
1: one-on-one or one with two or three.
2: Right. And eliminating background noise as much as you can because certainly that can be a distraction. And we've not really talked about hearing loss here, too, which may well become more of a factor when you get
1: in group situations, depending on where you are. Very good point. And uh, that would be another entire program just on the hearing difficulties and its impact on communication <laughs> Linda, I can't tell you how grateful I am to you for taking time out of your schedule, away from your horses, <laughs> to help to educate our listenership about this critically important area of language and communication. We've talked about the many different roles that language plays in a person's life, and, and we've talked about the different obstacles that come up in different conditions that, that are a hindrance to good communication and consequently may lead to depression, isolation, anxiety, fearfulness, agitation, restlessness, and I especially appreciate your experiences with, uh, with patients over the years and, and how much you've been able to bring that into the attention of our listeners. Um, we don't have the details worked out for next week's program, but two weeks from now, we will be speaking with Bradley Fragon, who is a former president of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, and I think that that will be a very informative program program. I look forward to uh, meeting back with you next week. And uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us. Linda, once again, thank you so oh, very thank much.
2: You. So long, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to Matters: the brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.